Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Quoted the rabbis, it says in the Mishnah and Ethics of Our Fathers, in the first Mishnah, the second chapter, look at three things and you will not come to sin. Know it's above you, an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and all of your deeds are recorded, are written down. The Alter Rebbe just mentions two items of the Mishnah. But there's an eye that sees and there's an ear that hears. He does not mention the, the item, third item, that all your actions are recorded because it's not what he's discussing here. Knowing that all your actions, all your deeds are recorded can lead a person to a very low level of fear, a fear of punishment. There's a record, an unerasable record. So if you know that everything that you do is recorded and it's unerasable, you're afraid. You think twice before you do it. You're afraid. You don't want to get hurt. But that's pure ego. Fear of punishment is pure ego. That's not what we're discussing here in the last two chapters. The level of fear that we're discussing here in the last two chapters is a sense of the divine. Fear of punishment, you're not thinking about the divine. You're thinking about yourself, your ego. You don't want to get hurt. Yes, you believe that God is all-powerful. And God knows and records. And therefore, you're afraid to start up with God. If all your actions are recorded, you know there's no getting away with it. <laughs> because there's nowhere to hide, there's nowhere to run. God is all-seeing. God is all... Everything that you do registers... And you're afraid. You don't want to get hurt. So that's... I'm not thinking about Hashem. I'm thinking about myself. That's ego. Here we're talking about Yirat Shemayim, afraid, fear of heaven, a sense of the divine, a feeling for the divine. And the lowest level of the feeling for a feeling of the divine is to know that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. As he said earlier, the parable given by Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, that when you realize that Hashem is present, just like if a, a human being, another human being, would be present in the room, you would behave in a certain way, only because you're not alone, somebody's watching, not because the other person's going to hurt you or punish you or you're afraid of... It's just, there's a presence. You sense a person's presence. You're not, you're not in private, you're in public, and you want to carry on the best behavior in public. You don't embarrass yourself. So too, when you realize there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears, you realize you sense Hashem's presence. Hashem, minimally, is at least as real to you as the presence of a stranger, of a human being, a simple human being. That's the minimal level of true Yirat Shemayim, of a sense of the divine, that Hashem, the divine, has a presence. is at least as real to you as a, as a stranger's presence, as a nobody standing in the room with you. 
if Hashem doesn't even have that, if you don't even have that sense of presence of Hashem, then you're not thinking of the divine. You're just thinking of yourself. God is going to hurt me. God is going to punish me. Lightning is going to come again. That's not what he's discussing. So he just mentions the two aspects, the two parts the Mishnah mentions, the eye that sees and the ear that hears. And not the introduction of the Mishnah that know what's above you. Everything that, everything that happens above depends on you. Again, that's a very high level of sense of awe of God when you realize that you affect all the worlds and everything that you do affects the angels and the higher levels of universes and even the divine world, the world of emanation. But that's a very high level. We're not talking about someone who's on a high level. We're talking about the average Jew, the simple Jew, the basic requirement of a Jew. The basic requirement of a Jew to achieve a level of sense of awe of Hashem is to sense, have a certain presence, a certain sense for Hashem's reality. And, and that is when you realize Hashem is looking right now, looking right at me, is with me, accompanying me, watching me. If you have a sense of Hashem's presence, then you won't sin. Hashem is present. If a human being was present, you wouldn't do certain things. So if Hashem is present, it's not less than that, <laughs> at least. So you won't do certain things because you're never alone. You're never in private. Hashem is always with you, 24-7. And you sense His presence. And it's actual. It's real. As real as another human being standing in the room. It's very actual. It's very real. very tangible. So too, you have to, it has to be as tangible to you that Hashem, there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. Hashem is here. Hashem is standing over me, present. You wake up in the morning, Hashem is standing over your bed, you jump out of bed because you sense Hashem's presence. Hashem is watching over me. Shivisi Hashem, Lenegdi Samit. Hashem is always right in front of me. Constantly. Tambit. Constantly. 24-7. This is the foundation, the cornerstone, the underpinning of a Jew's life. Without this, as we learned in the last chapter, there's no connection to Judaism. There's no connection to Godliness. Without this, you're on an ego trip. It has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with Godliness. Okay, now he's going to address what do you mean? What does the Mishnah mean? Is an eye that sees and an ear that hears. God doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have ears. God is not a physical being. So what do you mean when you say God is watching and God is listening? God doesn't have eyes and God doesn't have ears. So now he addresses that at the bottom of page 620. And although he has no bodily likeness, how then can we possibly say that Hashem possesses an eye and ear, organs that are part of the physical body? Yet, on the contrary, this is the very reason that everything is revealed and known to him infinitely more than, for example, through the physical medium of sight and hearing. What he's stating here is beyond the obvious. Obviously, God is not physical. God doesn't have physical eyes, and God is not a body, and doesn't have physical ears. And many times in the Torah, the Torah does speak of the eyes of God and the ears of God. And even there, we understand it doesn't mean literally that God sees and God hears. But as King David says in Psalms, in Psalm 94, could the creator of eyes not see? The creator of ears not hear? 
If you if you create hearing, you can't create what you don't have. So if, if we're able to hear, surely our creator is able to hear. If we're able to see, surely our creator is able to see. To know, to see, and to hear. Now, of course, does God doesn't have eyes and God doesn't have ears, and that's why He's not limited to physical eyes. Our physical eyes are limited. You can see a certain amount. You can see distance, but God's seeing and God's hearing is not limited. But it's a parable. Since God created seeing, God created hearing, so obviously God has all the values of seeing and hearing without any of the inadequacies of seeing and hearing. He doesn't have any of the limitations of our physical seeing and hearing, but he has all the advantages of our seeing and hearing. He knows, he sees, he hears, because if he creates it, he has these qualities as well. He's able to connect, just like you connect through seeing, you're able to connect through hearing. But here he's saying that God is even beyond, beyond that level. Yes, there is a level that we talk of of God's eyes and God's ears, and it's only a parable. But the truth is, God is even beyond that. When he says that God is not in the form of a body, it means even, even as a, a nimshal, even as a, a moral of a parable, God is beyond because God doesn't need senses in order to acquire information. We see the world, we hear the world, we taste the world, we touch the world, we smell the world, so therefore we, we acquire information through our five senses. If we were to shut off the five senses, we have no way of acquiring information. But God doesn't need anything, doesn't need any tools in order to acquire information. How does God know? When you say that Hashem does not possess any bodily likeness, you mean that He is not bound by the frailties of a physical body. A physical eye can observe corporeality, but not spirituality. It can see only when there is adequate light, and only up to a given distance, and so on. Physical hearing is likewise limited. Hashem's seeing and hearing, however, possesses only the merits of these faculties, but none of their physical limitations. For it goes without saying that any quality possessed by created beings is surely possessed by their creator. So that's what when we mean whenever the Torah says God sees or God hears, God's eyes and God's ears. But here he's saying God's knowledge is even beyond that even beyond perfect vision or perfect hearing, which has none of the limitations of physical hearing and physical seeing, God is even beyond that. Everything is known to God, almost like automatically. Galui viadua. It's, it's known to God. How is it known to God, if not via the senses? By way of illustration. By way of illustration, Hashem seeing and hearing and the fact that everything is revealed to him and known by him are like a man who knows and feels within himself all that is happening to and being experienced by each of his 248 organs, such as cold and heat, feeling even the heat in his toenails, for example, as when he is scorched by fire. So also their essence and substance. In order to know the world outside of you, you need the five senses. Without the five senses, you have no way of acquiring knowledge, awareness, information. But to know what's going on inside of yourself, you don't need the senses. You don't need to see yourself. 
to know what's going on inside of yourself. You feel. You feel cold, you feel hot. You don't need to touch yourself, you don't need to see yourself, you don't need to hear yourself. You just know. That's the difference between a patient and and the doctor. The doctor has no clue what's going on inside of him. Unless he can see a symptom. He can see a symptom, he can diagnose a symptom. If he gets the diagnosis correct, then they can, they can help you. But this patient, way before, the illness usually begins way before any symptom shows up. You know, even with the most sophisticated diagnostics, we, don't, we, we, we pick things that we can't pick up things till it's almost too late, till it's way developed. But things start in a much, in a very subtle way, and they can't pick up. But the patient feels inside something is wrong. I don't feel right. I know something is wrong. How many people we know that the doctor diagnoses them and they can't find anything wrong? The patient knows something is wrong. I don't feel right. And with all the sophisticated diagnostic tools that we have today, 2009, they have no clue. We, we don't see anything. Everything checks out. Your heart is good. Your blood is good. And everything is good. And it's just one of these mysteries, inexplicable mysteries. And they have no clue. They're clueless. But the patient knows the truth. Something is wrong. Doctor, I don't feel well. There's something not right. We're not talking about hypochondriacs. That also exists. But uh, we're talking about there's many cases where the patient knows something is wrong and has no idea. He has, he has no way to. He has no way. So until something shows up, until there's a symptom, until the doctor can see something or touch something, he knows nothing. The patient doesn't need any symptoms. Doesn't need to hear and doesn't need to see and doesn't need to touch and doesn't need to taste. Doesn't need to smell. From the inside, I don't. Something is not right. Doesn't feel right. This is knowing yourself. How do you know what's going on in your own organs, in your own limbs, in your own body? You just feel it from within. You don't need anything external to acquire that knowledge. It's just an inner sense that you feel. And also their essence and substance. Not only if there's something going on in the body, but just feeling yourself when you wake up in the morning. Do you need to hear yourself sing in the shower to know that you exist? You need to look in the mirror to know that you're there. To know that you exist. You need to touch yourself, to tap yourself, to know that you're there. No. You wake up. I am. You feel yourself. I. What I? You haven't even used your five senses. Who is that I? I. Who is that I? <laughs> it's that I. That's you sense yourself. That's yourself, your soul, your being. It's not an external knowledge. It's a knowledge that comes from within. It's the deepest knowledge. And that's why we say in the morning, Modeani, the first thing we do, we wake up in the morning, is we say, Modeani Lefanach. Because this is a parable to help us understand, just like we know Hashem from my own flesh. Just like a person knows himself. How do you know yourself? You don't need anything external to know that you're there. You just know yourself, your soul. And you're more certain of yourself. Your knowledge of yourself is deeper than any knowledge any ex- that's externally acquired. Through all the five senses, all externally acknowledged, 
acquired knowledge is nothing in comparison to the certainty and the depth of the knowledge of self, of, of yourself. And you're more certain of yourself than anything you can touch or see or hear or taste or smell. So from this you extrapolate, we are the microcosm. What's true in the microcosm is also true on the global level, in the macrocosm, that this world has a soul. And so therefore you're more certain, just like you're more certain of the reality of yourself from the inside out, that's how you experience yourself from the inside out, more than anything that's externally acquired, so too the scientist only approaches the world externally through the five senses. You take it to the laboratory, you measure it, you, 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 you dissect it, you categorize it, you see it, you taste it, you touch it, you smell it. But the world has a soul. And that's Hashem. And you're more cert- just like you're more certain of your own reality, because you experience that reality from the inside out, even though no one has ever seen their soul, you've never seen yourself, you've never touched that self, it's beyond, it's beyond the five senses, but you're more certain of that than anything in the world you can see, it taste, it touches. So too, you're more certain of Hashem than anything external that you can, material, external, that you can experience through the sense. So that's what you say right away. From myself, waking up in the morning and just sensing myself and realizing I don't need any five senses to sense myself, from this I know that there's lefanach, I'm standing before you, the world also has a soul, there's Hashem. If a person is happy and they're in good health, does that mean that their soul is healthy and in good health? Or can there be very, very happy people and very, very healthy people whose souls are not healthy? The uh, listen, a person person, you know, ignorance is bliss. A person could be in such pain that um, he doesn't feel the pain. You know, you, you've so, um, you've so, uh, it's like a, materialism could be like a narcotic that you just anesthetize. you don't sense the pain. You know, just like the body needs nourishment, the body needs nurturing, the soul also has hungers and needs. And what if you go through your life and you're very complacent and you're very satisfied with yourself, but you don't nurture your soul and you don't give the soul the food that the soul needs? You think you're happy, I'm happy, I have no need, I'm happy. I'm... But the truth is, you're in such pain, you're in such anguish that you completely anesthetize yourself. You don't even hear the anguish of your soul. You know, just because you, you're so distracted and you drown out your soul and you don't hear its, its voice, and you don't hear its, its hunger pangs. And um, that's why so many hundreds of thousands of young Jews who grew up without the benefit of a Jewish uh, education have rediscovered Judaism with a vengeance because they're starving. After three generations of being cut off from anything authentic Judaism, from genuine Judaism, spiritual Judaism, the soul's needs are not going anywhere. It's there. You can bury it. You can cover it up. But it, it's just crying out. It's, imagine starving for three, three generations. The soul is just bursting at the seams. Just, just, it's just so, and that's what you're seeing. You're just rediscovering Judaism with a vengeance. So a person could be complacent. And, and, um, and the truth is that also explains why Jews are so restless. There is a hunger, a yearning. And sometimes they don't even realize what they're hungering for. That's why they're going to search for Jew, for Buddhism and they're looking 
they're seeking, they're searching. They themselves don't even realize what they're hungering for. There's a restlessness. They have everything materialistic. They reach the, the top of the mountain. They climb Mount Everest in materialism. All their dreams have come true. The wealthiest generation of Jews that ever lived. And yet there's a hunger that's gnawing away at the soul because there, there's something lacking. There's you know, something the missing. Same in, in medicine because actually I think the majority of heart attacks are silent heart attacks. Meaning that the person's nervous system has been so damaged by sugar and the nerves are so affected that when someone's 70 and 80, they don't even get the chest pain or radiating arm pain or just silent heart attacks. A good percentage of them anyway. So maybe it's like the same thing. A lot of the things we, we don't perceive that are happening to our bodies, it catches up with us when we're 70 or 80. Or even the people who seem happy and complacent and healthy, maybe that explains why secretly they'll tell psychiatrists they're really unhappy. So from the outside they are. Because just the same way, like if someone, they're, they're not happy, and, and um, Rabbi Nachman says, if you're, if you're davening and you're praying and you're giving seductive, that's going to make you more happy because your soul is happier. It's probably the same way. These people, they might look from the outside like they're happy, but on the inside, it, it has to be both ways. If you improve yourself spiritually and, and your soul benefits and then a person actually becomes happier, it's got to be the opposite, so it must just be a materialistic outward appearance. But that could be, and also there could be that a person even deludes himself. A person even thinks that he's happy and doesn't even, doesn't even realize how much he's lacking and what he's lacking. You know, that, in other words, the soul could be, there's a silent scream. The Zohar talks about a silent scream. There's a scream that's so loud, there's, that, that there's an anguish that's so painful, that it's just silent, so silent that you yourself are not even aware of it. Because you just numbed yourself out. When a person is in such pain, a lot of addicts, by the way, a lot of addicts, people who become addicted to whatever it is, are very sensitive souls. But they're in such pain that they just numb out. So the fact that they numb out, is, the fact that they don't feel anything, it's almost like a, because, because there's such a deep pain, but, but they just numb, they can't deal with it. It's so overwhelming that they just numb out. So they don't feel anything, and they don't even realize, you know, they're just dead inside. They don't even realize what they're missing and they're lacking. But the pain didn't go anywhere. The anguish is there, and that's why, that's why they become addicted or they become, become self, self-destructive. It's, um, there is not two things, like there is um, the body and the soul, there is, they, it's the same, like the body have a machabarim and chosagidim, it's the same like the nefesh. Well, actually, even, even modern medicine today understands that a lot of illness is psychosomatic. Something that's written in the Zohar, written in Kabbalah, that the physical and the material, as we're about to learn here, are all connected. And therefore, when a person is spiritually unhealthy, many illnesses trace their origin to some emotional immaturity, some emotional, when you're stuck emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. A person could be healthy and he can look like he can look very vibrant, but he could be like a five-year-old child, like an infant who's stuck, his growth has been retarded, never really matured, never really grew up, has, un, has issues that he's never really dealt with, and, um, and they're causing tremendous pain. And even if you don't feel that pain, and eventually it will affect your health as well. Because the healthier you are, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and Jewishly, that will translate into physical health. Because the, the two are connected, psychosomatic, the body-mind connection. You can't divorce the two, you can't separate the two.
So the healthier you are spiritually, the more vibrant you are spiritually, it will also translate into physical health. The Torah says if you follow the Torah and the mitzvah, you will live a long life. It's not only, it's almost like a consequence as well. Because if, if, if your spiritual limbs are healthy and you're, and you're spiritually vibrant, that will translate also into physical health. You know, the more you get your act together spiritually, but it works both ways. But we'll get to that. Okay, continue. And also their essence and substance in the bottom of 621. So also their essence and substance, i.e., not only is the person aware of all that is happening to his organs, he also feels the organ cells, and all that is affected in or by them is known to the person who sends them. Please come in. One need not use his eyes or ears to see or hear what has happened to a limb of his body, such as the pain of a burned hand or foot, for he knows and senses it in his mind. Not only do you know what's going on in your body, if they're hot or cold, if you're burnt or you're freezing, but just knowing yourself, aware of yourself. You feel the organs, you feel yourself. You wake up in the morning, you feel yourself. And all, all that is affected by them, that a person is affected by the organs, just by their being, not by anything that's happening to them from the outside, but the person is affected by his, by his organs. So a person doesn't need anything external in order to know what's going on inside of you. You don't need eyes or ears or any of the senses. You just sense yourself, and you have a sense of self. You have a sense of anything that happens to your organs externally, and you have your and anything that's affected by them, by the organs. You sense it from the inside out. So this is a an analogy to Hashem's knowledge. Continue in a similar similar manner. In a similar manner of knowledge, by way of analogy, Hashem knows all that befalls all created beings of both higher and lower worlds because they all receive their flow of life from Him, as it is written, for from you come all things. Just as the brain, which is the source of life for the whole body, knows what transpires within it, so too does Hashem, the source of all life, know what is happening with all of creation. So Hashem doesn't need eyes and ears, even, so to speak, divine eyes and ears, which of course are perfect eyes and perfect ears, or perfect seeing or perfect hearing, God doesn't need externals, like we need senses in order to know the world around us. Hashem doesn't need anything external to acquire information. He knows it from within. He feels like a person feels himself. So too, Hashem knows, feels, knows it from within. It's a knowledge, an inner knowledge that comes from knowing yourself. It's a different type of knowledge than the external knowledge, which is acquiring external information through the senses. Okay, continue. And this is the meaning of what we say, and no creature is hidden from you, inasmuch as all created beings emanate from Him. This is what we just said on Rosh Hashanah, that nothing is hidden from you, because everything comes from Hashem. Since everything comes from Hashem, we are like the body, so to speak. Hashem is the soul, and we are the body. Just like the soul carries the body, knows the body, feels the body, senses the body, everything that's happening to the body, the being of the body... You know it from within, because it's like knowing yourself, because the body becomes a part of the soul. The body becomes an extension of the soul. So the soul knows itself, and it knows the body, intimately. Every nook and every cranny in the body, from a toenail, like you said. Your toenail is hot, you feel it. Even though the toenail is the most external part of a person. You can cut it, and it doesn't hurt. It's not really part of you, it's just connected to you. But if your toenail hurts, you feel it. 
because it becomes part of you. So we come from Hashem. Since we come from Hashem, we're like the whole world, the whole universe. is like Hashem's body. Hashem senses and knows everything. Knows everything that we're thinking. Knows everything that we speak. Everything that we do. Knows everything that we're feeling. Knows our emotional turmoil. Knows our, our inner chaos. Knows our problems. What's aching us. What's agitating us. What's bothering us. What's bugging us. What's nagging at us. He knows our thrills and our joys. Our ups and our downs. He knows everything. There's nothing in this world that escapes Hashem. That's what we just said in Rosh Hashanah. There's nothing from the amoeba to the greatest creature. There's nothing in the world that escapes Hashem. Hashem is completely aware. Just like the body. Just like you are completely aware of your own body. Nothing escapes your knowledge, your sense of self, what's going on inside your own body. You sense it immediately and instantaneously. Hashem senses the entire world. There's nothing in this world that escapes Hashem. It can because... Hashem is a soul and this world is a body. So Hashem, everything comes from Hashem. So Hashem senses everything and knows everything. Fully. Fully aware and fully knows. So Hashem's knowledge is much deeper than the eyes of Hashem. Yes, the Torah uses the analogy of the eyes of Hashem. As King David says, if whoever creates eyes surely can see. Whoever created ears surely can hear. So Hashem has all the advantages of seeing and hearing without any of the, uh, the disadvantages. It doesn't have the human limitations of seeing a certain distance or hearing a certain distance. Hashem's seeing is infinite and all-seeing and all-powerful and all-hearing. But the truth is, he's saying, Hashem's knowledge is even beyond that. So he feels us from within. Just like we feel, the soul feel, we know ourselves, we feel ourselves from the inside out. So Hashem's knowledge is from the inside out. Just like we know ourselves. That's an inner knowledge. But it's a much deeper knowledge. We're much more certain of ourselves than anything we acquire externally. Any knowledge, anything we're aware of through seeing, hearing, taste, touch, or smell. So Hashem's knowledge is from within. That's what it means. Galui v'yadua. It's known. Not through any external means. Without eyes or ears. Hashem knows. Hashem senses immediately, instantly. Feels, knows everything. And knows our needs and knows everything, registers everything. There's nothing that escapes Hashem. There isn't a movement. There there isn't a thought. There's nothing that happens in this world that escapes escapes Hashem's Hashem's attention. As Maimonides. As Maimonides speaking, as a philosopher has said, and this has been agreed by the scholars of the Kabbalah, as Rabbi Moses Cordova writes in Pardes, that by knowing himself, as it were, he knows all created things, whose source of existence is through existence. The Rambam writes that Hashem has knowledge. Again, if Hashem gave us knowledge, surely he has knowledge. The creator, whatever he creates, surely he has all the advantages of knowledge. But Hashem's knowledge is different than our knowledge. Our knowledge is externally based. You acquire knowledge. Every day you acquire more information. You acquire knowledge through the senses. You become aware. You learn things. Hashem's knowledge is different than our knowledge. Because how does Hashem know everything? Because He knows Himself. Because we all come from Hashem. So it's not an external knowledge. It's not that like Hashem has to discover something that's outside of Himself. He has to learn about us. You know... We are, he is us. We, he, we are created. He's creating us. So we are part of him. So he knows us because he knows himself. Just like he knows himself. So he knows us. He knows everything that we're feeling and thinking and everything. So it's a different type of knowledge. It's, it's an inner type of knowledge. It's a much more intimate type of knowledge. Our knowledge, which is external based, you can divide the knowledge into three parts. There's the person who knows there's the brain with which you know, and then there's the information that you're learning. Two, three different parts that come together in knowledge. Hashem's knowledge is different. It's like when a person knows himself. 
could you separate the knower, the knowing, and how you know? It's all the same thing. You know yourself because you are yourself. So the knower and the knowing and the knowledge and the information and how you know and the, through which you know, you know yourself through yourself because you are yourself. So what you know and how you know and who knows is all the same. So Hashem also, since we all come from Hashem, so Hashem, the knower and what He knows and how He knows, because He knows Himself, so He knows everything. So Hashem knows Himself. So it's a different type of knowledge. It's hard for us to relate to that type of knowledge. The closest parable we can get is like when a person knows himself. It's like you're aware of your limbs, you're aware of your organs, even your toenails, and everything that happens to them. Whether you feel cold or hot or anything, pain, or just feeling yourself. And everything, how you're affected by them, you feel that from the inside out. That's Hashem's knowledge. But now he's going to say that even this parable is an incomplete parable. Because the truth is, whenever we give a physical parable, it's incomplete. When you try to understand Hashem, yes, it says, from my flesh I know God. But it says, Echze. Echze is a translation. It's not Hebrew. In other words, it's a lower level, a lesser level of knowledge. Because you have to acknowledge that a parable is incomplete. Because ultimately, you can't compare Hashem to a human being. Even the perfect parable is limited. Because the analogy of a person knowing himself, like the soul and the body, is not a perfect analogy to Hashem. Although Hashem is like the soul of the world and the world is like the body. But that's where the analogy ends. It's not a perfect analogy. Why? However, God provides creation with life in a different manner than the manner in which the soul provides life to the body. The soul must grab itself in the body in order to provide it with life. By doing so, it is infected by the body, for in clothing implies that the clothed object undergoes a change. God, however, is of course not subject to change when he provides life to creation. Hence, this analogy of soul and body, however, is only to calm the ear, to make it possible for man's ear and intellect to perceive how one may know about something without having to actually see or hear it. In truth, however, the analogy of soul and body bears no similarity at all to the analogy of godliness and creation. For the human soul, even the rational and divine soul, is affected by the events which transpire with the body and its pain. By reason of its, the rational and divine soul, being actually clothed within the vivifying soul, i.e. the soul which provides the body with physical life, which in turn is clothed in the body itself. In the human analogy, the body-soul connection, the body-mind connection, is one of the mysteries in life. We see the connection, we observe the connection, even though we don't truly understand it. But we experience it. We know that they're connected, and it works both ways. We see the soul's effect on the body, the more vibrant, the healthier a person is spiritually and emotionally and psychologically, and the more mature and the more developed you are, the healthier you are, the more joyful and positive and optimistic. It directly affects your health, your physical health, and vice versa. When your body hurts, your soul can't think. It disturbs your soul. Even the godly soul within us which is the most deepest and the most abstract. But nevertheless, it's clothed in our body and it's affected by the body. As the 
Rabbi Dov Bell, the Magad Mezrich once said, a klein loch in guf is a great loch in the sham. A small hole in Yiddish, a small hole in the body is a big hole in the soul. If a person is not healthy, is physically unhealthy, it affects the soul. You can't focus, you can't concentrate, you can't think. If your body is hurting and you're in pain, it affects your soul. So it works both ways. Not only the soul affects the body, that, that we understand, that goes without saying. Because the body is a, like a reflection of the soul, a symptom of the soul. It's perfectly parallel to the soul. And therefore, anything that, anything that happens in the soul is, is like a readout. It, it affects the body directly. It impacts the body. But the body also affects the soul because the two are connected. So each one has an influence and is changed and is affected by the body. But Hashem is not that way. Hashem is not affected by the body, by the world. Although Hashem is like the soul of the world, and He's enclosed in the world, and He creates the world, and He sustains the world, and He senses the world, and He knows the world, and He feels us and senses us, and down to the smallest detail, and His divine providence, and He's aware of everything. And he's, and, but nevertheless, He remains unaffected by the world. And the reason is because the analogy of a body and soul is not an accurate analogy. Because the soul does not create the body. The soul comes down and expresses itself in the body and lives in the body. But the soul exists without the body. And the soul will continue to exist after the body, after, after 120 years. The body needs external nourishment to be sustained. It doesn't only live from the soul. It has its own source of existence, has its own source of sustenance. So it's, it's like two separate entities that come together as one. But then they separate again. So the body is formed in the mother's womb. And then the soul enters into the body. And then at death, the soul and body are separated again. And even when they exist, the body needs to be nourished, physical nourishment. It has its own source of nourishment, not just from the soul. Of course, you couldn't live a moment without the soul. But if all you had a soul and you didn't eat, didn't drink, you would die. The body needs its own source of nourishment. So the body and the soul are two separate entities. But they come together and they form a perfect unity. They become unified, absolutely unified. But they're still two separate entities that have become one and inseparable. And you don't know where the soul ends and the body begins, or vice versa, and the body comes alive. Every cell in the body is alive. And the body becomes one with the soul, so much so as if, as if the body becomes a part of the soul. You cut the finger, the, body, the soul feels the pain. You cut a corpse, nothing happens, and no one feels anything. But you cut the finger, and the, you cut a living person, and the whole the person is in pain, because the body becomes alive. They become inseparable. But they're still two separate entities that have become unified. With God, it's not that way. It's not that the world has an independent reality. And God breathes life into the world. And God is the soul of the world. And God guides the world and directs the world. And the world is completely egoless and nullified and completely inseparable with its life source with God. No. God creates the world. The world has no existence without God. Its entire existence is nothing other than God. Therefore, it's completely nullified before God. It's as if it doesn't exist. The God as if it doesn't exist. Therefore, God simultaneously creating the world, sustaining the world, vitalizing the world, every cell in the world, every aspect of the world, and yet at the same time, 
God is not expressed in the world because the world has, is not an entity. The world is not a vessel or vehicle for God. The world is constantly being created by God. It has no other reality other than God. So therefore the world is completely nullified before God. It's as if it doesn't exist. So God is imminent in the world. At the same time, is completely, He remains completely transcendent. While He's imminent, and while He's animating the world, and creating the world, and sustaining the world, at the same time, He remains completely transcendent, unaffected by the world. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this concept, because we have no analogy. The closest analogy we have is the God is of a human being. A soul and a body. That we can understand. That we, that we can relate to. Because it's our own personal experience. You can only relate to something that you can, you can draw on your own personal experience. So we know from our own personal experience that our knowledge of self, our sense of self, is so intimate, it's so deep. It's not, it's not external. You experience yourself from the inside out. You don't need the five senses. You don't need, it's not an acquired knowledge. It's something you know from yourself because you are yourself. And you're completely one with that knowledge. The knowledge and the knower and the knowing is all one, inseparable. So that's the closest we can get to understanding God. As Maimonides says, God is the knower and the knowing and, the, and what's knowing, it's all one. But beyond that, we can't relate to because it's beyond our experience. We don't have an analogy because we don't have that experience. We're not creators. We, don't, we can't even comprehend creation. Creation is totally beyond us. So to us to understand the idea that God creates the world each and every moment and the world has zero, no independent reality and the world is not even a vessel or a vehicle for God. The world is absolutely meaningless and nothing completely nullified before God because it's not like the body that's a vessel for the soul. So it's a meaningful relationship. The body is able to receive the soul, is able to absorb the soul, is able to, have, to become one with the soul. That's because the body is an independent existence without the soul. When the person dies, the body is there. When the person is born, before the soul fully enters the body, the body is there. And the body needs to be nourished and sustained through food and external nourishment. Because the body is an entity in itself. The body is not the soul. The soul is not the body. But in life, they become one, they merge, and they become inseparable. That's the closest we can get to understanding how something could be unified. But the world is nothing there. All there is is God. Because God creates the world every moment. The world has no reality without God. It's only that God wills the world and speaks and creates the world. That's where the world exists. The world is nothing without God. And therefore, God is not affected by the world. He's not affected by the knowledge. He knows us. He's aware of us. He's watching us. And at the same time, He remains completely transcendent and unaffected by the world. This soul is affected by the body. The soul is captured by the body. The soul can't wander away from the body. The soul for your life is in your body. You can't take a break and go elsewhere. The soul is attached to the body. The soul is captured by the body. The body is a vehicle for the soul. And they're intertwined and they're one and they're inseparable. God is not captured by the world. God remains, even when he's creating the world and sustaining the world, he remains completely transcendent of the world. So his knowledge of us and his awareness, total awareness, complete awareness of every detail, of the tiniest, slightest movement God feels and senses and knows everything. And is aware. And is watching and hears, sees and watches and hears. He's aware of everything, complete awareness. The slightest movement, thought, feeling, anything, experience. 
from the amoeba to the ant, anything, a leaf, anything in this world, anything that exists, to the higher levels of consciousness, the angels. Yet at the same time, God remains unaffected. It's not like the body-mind connection, from the body-soul connection. The soul is affected by the body. God remains unaffected by the world. God remains transcendent. He remains pure. He remains holy. That's the definition of holiness. He transcends the limitations of this world, of the, the um, frame of reference of this world, even while he's creating the world and is involved in the world and engaged in the world and fully knowledgeable and fully aware of everything. This is the paradox. We talk of God not as some transcendent being that couldn't care less about what's happening in this world. No. God cares and he's aware and he knows and he responds. Sustains us. Takes care of our needs. Watches over us individually down to the tiniest detail. When we pray, something is aching us, something is bothering us. We pour our hearts out. God is listening. He's paying attention. He cares. He responds. He's there. He's present. He's watching us. He's standing over us 24-7, watching us, caring. Are we going to do the right thing? We're not going to do the right thing. Praying and hoping we'll have the strength to do the right thing. Yet at the same time, he remains completely transcendent and unaffected. Now that's something that's very difficult, almost impossible for us to relate to because we have no analogy. You can only relate to something... You can extrapolate from your own personal experience. We don't have any analogy to that. Because our personal experience is not that way. The body and soul, which is as close as you can come to, to that concept of unity, of knowing something from the inside out, it's still two different entities. The body and the soul are two separate entities. And that's why the body is affected by the soul, and the soul is affected by the body. But God remains completely unaffected by His knowledge, completely unaffected by everything that happens in this world. He remains pure and absolutely uh, one and undivisible and unchanged by everything that happens in this world. So although philosophically it's very hard for us to wrap our mind around this concept, but we Jews are believers, the children of belief. Instinctively, we have this faith. We have faith in Hashem. We have faith in this transcendent, in His holiness. And at the same time, we have faith that God cares what happens in this world. Everything that happens in this world matters. Everything that happens to us makes a difference. God is watching. God cares and is concerned and is involved and engaged and aware, fully aware. And at the same time, it does not affect God. This is the ultimate paradox. This is Jewish faith, which is unparalleled. But this is the essence. This captures the essence of Jewish faith. Could that be because everything that he runs is good, so everything that happens is good? So even if we perceive it as sad or bad, he actually perceives it as happy and good, and we're just not seeing the end of the story. We, we only see the beginning, but he can see the end. It's beyond that. Beyond. It's beyond that. Because, <laughs> it's because beyond God, God right, we, you, that's just the reason. He's trying to give an explanation. And while there's, there's truth to that also, but that's, that's, here he's saying it's beyond that because God's relationship to us is fundamentally different. God is not like the soul to the body. It's just the wrong, the analogy just breaks down because it's not so. We are not the body and God is not our soul. There's no analogy to our relationship to God because the body is not created by the soul. 
But we are created by God, each and every moment. And we have no other reality than God. And therefore, this analogy completely breaks down. This is discussed elsewhere at great length, as he's going to say in a moment. Earlier, chapter 20, I would refer you to go back to LessonsInTanya.com, chapter 20, 21, 22, with this whole concept is discussed at great length and great depth, um, the unity of God, the meaning of the absolute unity of God, and how it's completely different than the analogy of the human body. Um, but here he's just referring to that, to the gist of that, that there is no analogy, and therefore this, this, our whole relationship to God is something that we can't really, it's very difficult to relate to, because God creates us, and therefore we are nothing in comparison to God. It's as if we don't even exist. The body does exist in comparison to the soul. It's significant. And that's why the body has an effect on the soul, just like the soul has an effect on the body. But since we are like, as if we don't exist, and so we, our whole being is completely insignificant to God, therefore, we have no effect on God. Because if we were to affect God, then God would not be one. So God remains completely and absolutely transcendent. At the same time, he completely creates us and sustains us and is aware of us and cares about us and knows the slightest movement and the slightest change, senses it immediately and is aware and responds and there's nothing that escapes because everything comes from him. It's not possible. So the analogy of the body is correct. It's just like the soul feels everything that's happening in the body because it's so connected and it's an inner knowledge. The soul doesn't need to see or to hear. It doesn't need to acquire that knowledge through anything external, through any of the five senses. You just know yourself. Therefore, automatically you know everything that's happening inside of you. So that's an analogy that helps us understand the, the, the knowledge of God, that God just is aware, just like a person is aware of himself. So God is aware of himself, and therefore, by being aware of himself, he knows everything in this world. There's nothing that escapes. But that's where the analogy breaks down. The relationship is something we have no analogy for. It's something that doesn't exist in our realm. It's, it's a uniquely godly relationship that, the, that God is the creator and therefore nothing exists besides God and there is no reality outside of God and therefore we are as if we don't exist we are completely, our whole being is completely insignificant and therefore God remains completely transcendent unaffected so simultaneously that God is creating us yet he remains unaffected by us as it says the Talmud places elsewhere that God is the space of the world. God grasps the world, but the world does not grasp Him. Simultaneously, He grasps the world, but yet the world does not grasp Him, cannot grasp Him. So He grasps us, He creates us, He sustains us, He watches over us, He's aware of us, He cares about us, He responds to us the slightest movement, every detail. And at the same time, we cannot grasp him. He remains ungraspable. He remains unaffected. While the, the soul is grasped by the body. The soul is grasped by the body. The soul can just leave. The soul is intertwined with the body. And the soul is affected by the body. And the body is affected. Surely if the body is affected by the soul. But that's not true with God. God is not affected by the world. He is not affected by the existence, the essence and being of the world. None of them affect any change in Him, God forbid, nor in His absolute unity. Just as He was one of the unified before He created them, so too does He remain one and unified after their creation. 
In order to help us understand this well with our intelligence, the scholars of truth, i.e. the Kabbalists, have already treated it at length in their books, and an explanation will be found there. However, all Jews, as descendants of the patriarchs who believe in God, are believers, descendants of believers, without any speculation of mortal intellect, whatever, and they declare, you were the same before the world was created, and so forth. The passage concludes, you are the same since the world has been created. Thus all Jews firmly believe that the world's creation causes no change in God, as explained above in chapter 20. So we say every morning in the prayer, that just like God was alone before He created the world, there was nothing else but God, so too now, even after God creates the world, nothing changes. God remains alone as if there's nothing else besides God. Creation makes absolutely no difference to God. No change. It doesn't bring about a change. It doesn't affect Him. See, we are affected. We are affected by the world around us. We are affected. We're changed. A teacher is affected by his students. You're not the same person before you teach or after you teach. It affects you. The soul is affected by being enclosed in the body. Even the divine soul within us is affected by being enclosed in the body. The body hurts, the soul, the soul is affected. God is the soul of the world, and yet he's not affected by the world. He remains alone. He remains unchanged, unaffected by it. As he explains at great length, we learned earlier uh, in chapter 20. But this is the closest analogy that we have to give us some idea, to help us understand somewhat when we say God sees, God hears, God knows, God is aware. So we have to have some analogy. So this is the analogy that there's an eye that sees, there's an ear that hears. As he explains, that God is beyond even an eye and an ear. Perfect eye, perfect ear. It's not only that God, if he can create sight, of course he can see. And if he can create hearing, of course he can hear. But God's knowledge is much deeper than that. And the closest analogy we have is like a person knowing himself. So God knows everything. Nothing escapes his awareness, his knowledge of everything that happens in this world. When the bug is crying or the ant is crying or the ant is in pain, God feels it. <laughs> There's nothing in this world that can escape God because God is creating the ant this moment. Everything comes from God. There's nothing outside of God. It's like the soul knows its body, senses the body from within, from the inside out. So God's knowledge is an inner, inside-out type of knowledge. God knows himself, and therefore he knows everything in this world. Everything is instantly known to him. But the truth is, he's saying that that's where the analogy breaks down. Analogy is limited. Because although God knows and and is aware, God is not affected by that knowledge. How? It's very difficult for us to understand. But we all believe it. We're Jews. We have a Jewish soul. That's what we call faith. We, we have faith in the transcendence of God. We have faith. Religion is... Mysticism and religion is knowing that God is the soul and this world is a body. That's a mystical orientation. That You start realizing the world has a soul. The world is alive. Just like the body. You can't see your soul. But you're more certain of your soul than anything in the world you can see or taste or touch or smell. Because you, you experience it from the inside out. You wake up in the morning, you see. You don't need to see yourself to know that you're there. You've never seen your soul, but you're certain of yourself more than anything external. So from this you can extrapolate. The same is true with the world. The world is pulsating. The world is alive. The world has... The, the divine energy is, is 
coursing through the world, is, the world is alive, even though you can't see God. But so what? You know that there's a soul. That's the mystical bent. That's the religious bent. That open, you open your eyes and you realize that the world is a body and the world has a soul. And you don't lift the pinky without the soul. The, the body is a corpse without the soul. So to the world, nothing happens in this world without God. God isn't totally in charge. God is in total control of the world. You don't lift the pinky without Hashem. So that's, that's religion, that's mysticism. Not Judaism. Judaism is Jewish faith. It is the belief that this world is not even like a body to God. Like the relationship of a body to its soul. It's totally transcendent. God is, this world is nothing to God. The world is absolutely meaningless and absolute, as if it doesn't exist. At the same time, God is creating and sustaining us and pulsating through us and is totally aware of everything that's happening and is involved and engaged and cares. And at the same time, God remains completely transcendent, completely beyond our comprehension. That's Jewish faith. That's why we refer to God as a Kaddish Baruch, the Holy One, blessed be. He's transcendent. Holy means transcendent, beyond our comprehension, beyond our whole frame of reference. That's why we approach God with a tremendous reverence, tremendous awe. You're not just dealing with something you can grasp, you can understand. You're dealing with something holy. And the greatest genius approaches God with such humility. But the greater the genius, the more you realize how little you know, how little we could know, and how transcendent God is. And therefore you approach God with a tremendous sense of awe fear of Hashem, of awe, of, you're in the presence of greatness, you're in the presence in other words, Hashem is standing right in front of me this Hashem is standing right in front of me is something that totally defies imagination totally defies any comprehension and this transcendent Hashem Hashem who's so transcendent cares about me and answers my prayer and my aches and my pains and cares about the slightest change in my behavior cares about what I'm thinking cares about how I speak, whether I speak vulgar or I speak refined way, cares about how I act, cares about the slightest movement, the slightest change for the better. What an awesome thought. To realize Hashem, this great transcendent Hashem, that's so beyond anything we can possibly imagine. There's no analogy. We have no analogy. We have no, we have no frame of reference. We have nothing to compare Hashem to. Our human experience is so limited. Even the body-soul, which is the most powerful, most intimate, most in- innermost experience that we can possibly have, is nothing in comparison to what Hashem is. Hashem's relationship to this world. We have no analogy, really. We just know that everything in this world, Hashem has all the advantages. So just like the body, knows the soul knows the body and feels the body from the inside out, so Hashem also knows everything that's happening in this world. But Hashem is not limited. doesn't have any of the limitations of the physical analogy. The, the, the limitation of the body-soul relationship, which is limited to Hashem, that's where the analogy breaks down. Hashem's relationship to the world is totally beyond our comprehension. And He remains completely unaffected by this world. We can't even relate to that idea. So this transcendent Hashem, who's so transcendent, is involved in my life. Cares whether I'm going to eat a kosher pastrami sandwich or not. Cares if I'm going to light a Shabbat candle. Cares if I'm going to be kind and generous, loving, good. Cares what I think in the privacy of my mind. Cares what I look at. Cares what I think. How I speak. How I behave. 
behind closed doors, 24-7. What an awesome thought. This is enough to give you Yirat Shemayim. This gives you the fear of Hashem, the sense of awe of Hashem. This is the foundation of Judaism. To be continued. The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours, and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golos, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible. 24-6, to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself.